So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now, with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I'm Richard O'Shields, and way over there, there, over there, Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have something good to say, just don't say it, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, had a um, bit of a miscommunication meltdown with uh with the banks today. And I'm I'm finding that it's not it's not just me. So apparently there's something going around, it's in the air and I'm sure it'll pass and Yeah. It, it, every, it everything will get done fixed. It, but but yeah, I had absolutely. mine yesterday and 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 a little bit more today and someone actually asked me if I had all my banking stuff ironed out. <clears throat> And I said, well, almost. And next time I'm going to ask for extra starch. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me. Something in the air. I don't know. know, A friend um, lost a card. It's it's been several of us. So hopefully it's not going around for all of our listeners. Yeah, how weird is that? I'm not aware of any retrograde anything, but then I don't keep track of that too much because... No, I just I saw I saw it posted yesterday that it was going to be retrograde, and, and you know I don't know if that really means anything. I, I don't track generally as a rule either, um, but <laughs> whatever is in the air today, uh, certainly had its fun with a few people. Yeah, as um, it's odd, and I, I do think that's one of those things. Is, uh, of that is communication uh, meltdowns of some sort, and uh, so it actually is it. See now you got me looking. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have I something think, to talk about. Yeah, Mercury, Mercury retrograde is. I, I believe it's supposed to supposed to be about communicating communications melting down, and I, I suppose. That would include the banking systems, yeah, because they rely on on the internet for you know all their transactions. <laughs> Everything goes through the wires. So um, yeah, if money's missing or lost or, in my case, stolen. Um, ah, <laughs> uh, well, see here, we're gonna. Uh, we already mentioned in our little pre-call that you know maybe we would talk about certain folks and certain things and. Uh, Apparently, uh, 
the Mercury retrograde chart, uh, this it actually goes retrograde tomorrow. <clears throat> okay. But we we tend to be early, you and I. Um, but one of the things it says is that uh, the chart is pretty dramatic with a red-hot poker of uh, Jupiter opposite Pluto. Okay. Dus- dusky Pluto is still so near a fresh out-of-retrograde Venus in her Lucifer phase right now, oh. making her more provocative than usual. And uh, But it said... Uh, it's, that's the second paragraph. First paragraph just starts off. Mercury turns retrograde on February 6, 2014, and is pretty much a mermaid-drenched Neptunian affair. The most difficult thing will just be trying to think straight. <laughs> comforting. That's comforting. Yeah. Um, well, I. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna skip that. Well, we've done. That. We've done ours already. Gonna, we gave it the office. Yeah, we'll see there. There. Okay, there you go. Um, even before it came into retrograde, apparently it got this. But I, it, it's odd how things tend to happen in groups. And I don't know if it is just like a, a global energetic thing um, or if it has to do with, you know, the, the alignment of the planets and the stars and all that stuff or if it's if it's just something as simple as me having seen Mercury retrograde and in the back of my mind thinking, oh, communication breakdown, and then yeah, there I go, I'm manifesting something wrong. I I don't know, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna choose to um to to say yeah, well, been there, done that. I'm, I'm done with that experience now. So let's move on to something else. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm marking yeah. that one off the calendar. That's why I don't. Okay, yeah, already did it. Good. Dates and because I I don't think it's good to plan on things going south. No. In advance. No. No, I don't think so. I, I mean, very don't get me wrong, people. I, the health. You know, as a former sailor, I'm, I I do believe that you should have emergency equipment and things, but it's it's been my experience and that of most of the sailors I know that if you have all of your emergency equipment in order, you never need it. And um, but if you plan on having an emergency, that's different. Well, the interesting thing about having all your emergency equipment order is that you have this level of confidence right. that you're take care of regardless. And so you're not really planning on anything going wrong because if it goes wrong, it's still going to go right. Yeah, because so you're you don't, because you're not worrying about it. You don't have it in so, there in your head that, you know, oh my, what if? You you know what Yeah, if, right? Or you think you, you do. You know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. And moving on. And I think that <laughs> I'm making a request to our listeners. If any of you are on my Facebook feed, please stop posting things Mercury Retrograde. <laughs> apparently it gets me every time I want to know. I was, oh no, it's coming! And then, yeah, something happens. Something Back when we were watching the solar flares to see when they were coming, I was under strict instructions never to say something was coming. Right. Because well, because I don't want to know that I'm going to get a headache or something. Because if I don't know, then I'm not going to get a headache, as we discovered. So yeah. you know, I don't know. Sometimes it's just better not to know. This is my opinion. But you, you, you did toss around an interesting word there. And since we're bringing back um, back uh, friend us. of ours for round two of uh, our special on, uh, I don't know what we'd call it. I guess 
you know, where where science meets spirituality, and it's it's kind of a really in depth glimpse into the meaning behind some of the history and the the truth behind some of the scriptures, what they meant when put into context with understanding the history of the times. Um, and we're bringing them back. And one of the things that we said we were going to talk about was that that horrible man, that yeah. being, that thing. He's that so horrible, somebody might call him the devil or true. something. Oh. You might, right? Um, I believe you brought it up just a second ago. Lucifer, Lucifer. so why don't we bring... Lucifer. Why don't yeah. we bring Thomas on and get to it? Because round two is going to be fun. The uh, wonderful Thomas Fusco. Thomas, how are you? Very good, guys. Seems we just talked recently. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We might have. Yeah, something. So... You know where you left off. Where would you like to get started? I'm gonna put it back in your hands because last time it worked brilliantly doing that. So I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> Thomas, you're up. <laughs> well, I don't remember where we left off, uh, other than to uh, uh, say that what we've been talking about is the the mystical, the underlying uh, mysticism. Uh, into the Judeo-Christian scriptures. That's kind of where we, uh, uh, you know, the direction that we went. And there is a lot of underlying, deeper meaning to these things that, uh, uh, you know, most people are not aware of or haven't really looked into it. And uh, uh, You know, we were talking a little bit about uh, Satan, uh, the uh, idea of evil, and what that represents on a deeper level, and <clears throat> uh, what exactly uh, uh, some of the uh, um, ideas are uh, from the scriptures on this, and, and also some misconceptions uh, that are commonly held. Uh, and one of the uh, uh, misconceptions uh, is that the idea that uh, the that uh, Satan was a glorified angel that uh, sinned against God and fell from grace and uh, uh, that type of a uh, scenario. Uh, and this is commonly associated with the name Lucifer. And the, uh, the truth of this matter is that when uh, one studies the uh, uh, the scriptures, uh, the Bible in great detail, and just takes it at its word and, and doesn't try to read something into it that is some sort of a preconception. Uh, what we find is that there really isn't anything that specifically states that uh, in the Bible. Uh, there are some uh, certain passages that are uh, that can be loosely associated with that kind of an idea. So uh, I think it's an important topic uh, in talking about these this underlying uh, mystical meaning uh, to the Bible. And uh, I guess the first part of this is to kind of get an idea of where this word Lucifer actually came from. 
because it's not written about in the New Testament at all. Uh, and if we look at the native, the, the underlying uh, uh, native languages in which uh, all the books of the Bible were written, either uh, Aramaic or, or uh, you know, ancient Hebrew or Greek, we don't find this word anywhere. And what the term came from, where, where it came from was when Jerome translated the existing Bible that they had at the time into Latin. And that became known as the Latin Vulgate. And that was the official translation of the Bible uh, for the church for centuries. In fact, uh, the King James Bible, which, of course, is very highly respected in the Protestant world, um, is also drawn quite a bit off the Vulgate. And some Protestants that haven't studied this are, are kind of surprised to uh, uh, find this out. Uh, I, I had a, an associate one time comment about this, that uh, some of the Protestants have such a, when they complain and downgrade the Latin Vulgate, uh, it's sort of like kind of sawing the branch off that you're sitting on. Because uh, the King James was based quite a bit on the Vulgate. Anyway, uh, what we have here is that when um, when Jerome translated it into Latin, uh, there is a term that exists. Oh, let's see. I'm going to be pulling out my references here. So if I have some. Hesitation, it just means that I don't have these uh, references off the top of my head. Uh, That's okay. We appreciate you you making the references so that, you know, because I think what's important to, to um, note here is that you have done a great deal of research on this subject. So this is not just stuff that you're pulling out of your hat, so to speak. This is, you've got, you have verses and research that you are are looking at and that you've gone over for for years that that you're referring back to so this is that's a good thing to note right off the top because it's a pretty it can be a pretty heavy conversation yeah it's not just an, not just an opinion yeah yeah uh, and uh of course as as you folks know um you know some of these underlying concepts that i discovered uh, in the scriptures kind of uh, kind of led me into looking at the you know cosmology of the universe in a different way and ultimately helped uh, bring about the super geometric theory that's uh, you know that's in my book behind the cosmic veil um, anyway the reference that we're talking about here uh, is going to be found in the uh, chapter 14 of Isaiah. And uh, if we look at the RSV, which is a modern English translation, but it was also an attempt to do a, uh, a more literal translation. And of course we know there's, there's two different kinds of translations that we see uh, from the ancient tongues. One of them is tries to be as literal as possible, one class. And the other class tries to interpret what is being said and come up with an equivalent in the modern vernacular. 
which I don't think are as accurate. They may be easier to read, but a lot is uh, a lot of the original intent can be lost. But anyway, uh, we've got this phrase in verse 12 where it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. And the clear reference in the Hebrew, uh, and even in the Greek, is referring to the morning star, which was the brightest star in the sky in the morning. And it was very common in ancient times for people to uh, use a metaphor uh, for the magnitude or the uh, uh, power of something, like an individual or a kingdom or an army, by comparing it to spectacular um, elements of the natural world. Uh, so, for example, uh, a great general might be uh, compared to the cedars of Lebanon, which were huge giant trees, or they might be compared to the magnitude of the stars. And in this case, this is what we're talking about, because the morning being the dawn, being the beginning of the day, being the most prominent part of the day, so to speak. You know, it is the, uh, the leader, so to speak, the head of the day is the dawn, the beginning of the day. And the brightest star that is in the sky is the morning star. So here we have the uh, uh, king of Babylon, who is considered at this time to be the most powerful ruler in that region and the most powerful kingdom in that region, being compared to the morning star, the brightest star of all the stars anywhere in the sky. Now, we know that today to be the planet Venus. That's the morning star. And Morning Star is definitely the original uh, understanding because even in the original King James Version, uh, the first edition, this phrase is footnoted as saying Day Star. And, of course, it's spelled in the archaic uh, form, S-T-A-R-R-E, in the archaic English. But uh, it's clear that even the King James translators understood this to represent the Morning Star. Now, when Jerome translated this into Latin, there was already words in Latin for the morning and the evening star, and that it was understood that these were, you know, uh, basically uh, the same object appearing at different times. So in the evening star, the name is Hesperus, and the morning star, the Latin term for it is Lucifer. Wow. So, yeah, that's where it came from. Jerome was just being a good scholar and used the proper Latin word that stood for the morning star. And that's where the term Lucifer started. That's why you can't find it in any kind of a literal translation in the scriptures. It's just not there. So that's where that comes from. Now, how did it begin to become a legend? Yeah, uh, like, I mean, how did, because, I mean, just going over in my head last 
um, show, which I'm, I'm sure people tuning into this will have already listened to, and we're certainly going to direct them to listen to it if they haven't. But going over in my head, the last show, I was, I was silent, like dead silent through most of it, because I was kind of in awe. As much research as I've done, I haven't gone nearly as in-depth as you have. And I really was in awe of some of the, the ideas that you were bringing forward. And I remember thinking at the end of it, you know, my question has, still remains the same. Even after all the documentaries I've watched, all the research I've done, the books that I've read, my own examination of the Bible, writing my own two books, my question still remains the same. How did we get it so twisted and confused and uh, it, it just baffles me. Well, I think uh, this is rooted in what I call, and, and we alluded to a few things that I'm going to mention again uh, in, in the previous uh, uh, show. Uh, this is part of what I call the warm, fuzzy teddy bear in the sky syndrome. And what this was was a belief that God was all good and God was all knowing and God was all loving, you know. And so consequently, how could he have possibly had any role in evil? And so in order to overcome this apparent philosophical problem, um, they came up with various different ways to solve this. And, of course, one of them we talked about uh, earlier in the last show was uh, the Gnostic view, where they came up, oh, excuse me, where they came up with uh, two gods, with the evil god, the creator, and the good god, who was the father of Jesus Christ. And that's how they overcame it. So anything that was contrary to the warm, fuzzy teddy bear in the sky in the Old Testament, was attributed to the evil God. Uh, and they're really, again, this is something where there's no scriptural evidence for it whatsoever. It was just a philosophical solution. Well, there are certain passages in the Bible that reference uh, something about, uh, you know, uh, making a choice to turn evil. Uh, in various places, like Adam and Eve, that they chose to disobey God's word and, and, and eat the apple. And so consequently, it, it grew into this kind of an idea that Satan was once this glorified angel who uh, rebelled against God and turned evil. And so this solved the problem. Why is there evil in the world? Because of Satan. You know, because Satan rebelled, he was thrown down to earth, and that's why there's evil here in the world. And one of the other justifications for it is a misinterpretation uh, of the book of Genesis, uh, where in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, and he did it in various stages. And he says, and, and he saw that it was good and linked to this uh, Luciferian uh, idea uh, was an interpretation that that good had a moral connotation to it. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is tob. And so God created the heavens and earth and saw that it was good, and it was all good at that time. 
There was no evil in the world at all. That came later. Um, but the underlying Hebrew actually means exemplary, uh, exemplary, a job well done. In other words, God did a really good job when he made all these different stages of the creation that he made, and he saw that he did a good job, that it was good. So right. there's no indication there from the underlying Hebrew that there's any kind of a moral connotation to it whatsoever. Um, so anyway, uh, we look at this. Uh, this is the most often quoted uh, uh, set of passages, uh, and this is from Isaiah. Uh, and I should add that if you do an extensive study of the Church Fathers' writings, uh, you know, in the second century, and even towards the end of the first century, you'll find that there is this sort of kind of uh, uh, inability to absolutely ascertain a book definition for why there was evil in the world and what role the Satan played in it. Um, so if you look at Polycarp and you look at... Uh, 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 the writings of uh, uh, Clement and uh, those early church fathers. Uh, this was still something that they were in the throes of debating. Uh, so there was certainly nothing in the scriptures that uh, solidly indicated uh, uh, one direction or the other for them. Anyway, it says, uh, and again, this is an RSV in, uh, translation, uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. And some people have used the Latin word Lucifer for the morning star there. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now this is a, a prophecy or what was called a taunt song against the king of Babylon. So in order to get a Luciferian interpretation, some of the passages have to be completely thrown away. You have to cherry-pick uh, these passages and throw out anything that doesn't fit in. Uh, so, you who laid the nations low was the fact that he was a great conqueror. Uh, and it really doesn't have anything referring to Lucifer, uh, specifically. Now, the, the next phrase is interesting. And I can't tell you probably how many millions of people of their eyes passed across these words and didn't see what it was saying. Verse 13 says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far north, um, which was according to the Syrian legend, the earthly abode of God. Um, so here we have, now according to the Luciferian legend, that the rebellion occurred in heaven and that God cast Satan down to earth because of his rebellion. But in this, it says that the rebellion began in this person's heart while he was on earth. And the rebellion was, I'm going to ascend into heaven and be like the Most High God. So this is the exact opposite of what the Luciferian mythology says. Uh, and it's right there in black and white. There's, there's, uh, uh, 
you know, it's not like, a, you know, something obscure. Um, I will ascend above the height of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down the shoal to the depths of the pit, which was the ancient understanding of what hell was. It was the place of the dead. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his kingdoms, uh, his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nation lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your sepulture like a loathed, untimely birth. So again, here we're talking about something where it's clearly referring to a, a human. And it very perfectly refers to the king of Babylon, which within the context of this, this whole section, uh, it shows that this was clearly what this was intended towards, was the king of Babylon. Uh, now, you know, in the traditional understanding, the, uh, Satan is the, uh, the prince of hell. He's the leader of hell. He sits on the throne. Okay, and according to these passages, if we were going to interpret it this way, that there were already people, souls there before Satan got there. That doesn't make any sense. Because it says when right. he's brought down the shoulder, the depths of the pit, those who see you will stare at you. Well, who's there? I thought he was the first inhabitant. If he was the tempter that got people down there, wait, yeah, where'd, the, where'd they come from? Yeah. So it, it makes no sense. Plus the fact, again, with the traditional view, uh, where uh, Satan is the torturer, he's the tormentor. He has absolute authority in hell to do with any soul what he pleases down there. So, yeah, the souls who are subject to eternal torture in any form that Satan chooses are going to surround him and mock him. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, probably not. There'd be a lot wow. of begging and kowtowing and, and uh, but it was that the Israelites would taunt the Babylonian king because they got out of there. Yeah, it says uh, in verse 20, you will not be joined with them, uh, you know, with the kings of the earth, uh, in burial because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. Now, what in the world would a spiritual being, apparently an eternal being that was once a glorified angel, what in the world would he care about being having an earthly burial? And this is the big, this is it. What we read is the number one section here that is quoted all the time to defend this Luciferian myth of a once-fallen uh, angel. Uh, so it, it, just, there, it just isn't there. It just simply isn't there. The only way to read it into there is to read that with the preconceived notion in your mind and use filters to throw out anything or just completely be blind to anything that's contrary to the uh, uh, preconceived notion of a fallen Lucifer. 
Or perhaps if uh, you were somebody that had that idea and wanted to use the book well, to prove it or to back yourself up on your own personal idea. Yes, which is often done, you know, when which people is, get certain beliefs, they'll cherry pick the, the scriptures and, and pick out whatever it is that, you know, uh, uh, seems to affirm what they're talking about and then completely ignore anything to the contrary. Yeah. So this is actually not part of the underlying mysticism of the scriptures, this idea of a fallen angel. Um, now, Jude refers to something like this um, uh, in the letter that's attributed to Jude in the New Testament. Uh, in, in verse 16, in verse 6, chapter 1, uh, in Jude it reads, And the angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom. Now, this has also been said, well, see, you know, Satan and his minions were cast down to earth, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but it doesn't really say this. This actually refers to something which is uh, expanded on, uh, you know, in a greater depth in the Enochian writings, the Book of Enoch, the Secrets of Enoch, neither of which are included in the, in the canon, in the Jewish canon. Um, but what it says is this. It says that the angels did not keep their former place, but they uh, left their proper dwelling where they were in heaven. It doesn't say anything about Satan. The other thing that it says has been kept by God. They've been kept by God in eternal chains in the nether gloom. Now, that's another instance to see that Jude is not referring to Satan because Satan is not chained. Satan is unbound. He's loose. He's on the earth. He's right. always associated with the physical world. Every reference to him shows that he is active and engaged in the evil works of the physical world. Moreover, one of the reasons why Jesus is supposed to return to belief in the second coming is he's going to defeat Satan once and for all. Well, if Satan's already chained, then that kind of... Yeah, what is there to defeat? Exactly. An actual a Christian who actually believes in the second coming and the ultimate conquering of Jesus Christ over the evil and, and the, uh, you know, those domains in the world is actually committing a very serious sacrilegious belief by believing that Satan is somehow chained with these fallen angels. And again, the, the, these fallen angels that it talks about, as you pointed out, it's not that God kicked them out of heaven, it's that they didn't stay. The angels themselves didn't stay and left. No, they, they made a choice. That's right. That's exactly right. And this is tied into the Enochian literature with the, um, the sons of God that saw the daughters of men and saw that they were fair and had children by them. 
that's written in the book of Genesis. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, where did where did evil come from? Well, what the Bible says, what the scriptures allude to, is that God actually created evil. That he is the one who created, well, God created the angels, he created everything. Uh, so consequently, right. God must have created evil also. And this is what the Bible attributes to. And again, the Luciferian believers in that myth and the warm fuzziers are, never talk about the passages that I'm about to talk about right now. And these are clear and concise. They're not something that is open to ambiguous or hazy interpretation. They're very clear and straightforward, uh, starting in the very beginning, uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, I believe this is chapter 2, where it says, Now the serpent, and if there was any question of what the serpent was, certainly in the Christian era, it was understood to be Satan, because the book of Revelation specifies that the ancient serpent is indeed Satan. Uh, using the term ancient serpent to refer back to a text that was thousands of years old when uh, the Revelation was written. Now, the serpent was more subtle, and that could mean cunning, crafty, that type of a interpretation. It's not, you know, right. it's not something that's to be admired. The serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. There it is. That would be Black any other any other creature. Yeah. And very very clearly stating that this creature also was created by God. Yeah, because it it's the serpent is an animal. Right. So consequently it the, the reference is, is that the serpent was among the animals, or in the older way of translating it, you know, was more cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The RSV does make uh, uh, attempts to bring things into more modern vernacular. Uh, but beast of the field was a very uh, common translation in previous centuries. Uh, so... The serpent is actually numbered as one of the beasts, one of the beasts that God made, not some glorified angel. And there it is in black and white. I mean, you know, it's hard to argue around this, uh, other than to put on the blinkers and say this doesn't exist, I don't know why, but because of, you know, uh, 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 chapter 12 in Isaiah, then Satan was once glorified an angel, fell for grace. You know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, I don't know what this means, and so on and so forth. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Uh, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, if you read exactly what the book says, it just says something very different than that fallen Lucifer myth. Um, than than, than what many of us are taught. And that's, that's kind of the scary part here is that for a very long time, these scriptures were not in the hands of the common man. They were 
they were explained and they were read to interpreted for they were interpreted for absolutely um but common man i mean i i i was in absolute shock when i went to the philippines and they told me that it had only been 10 years prior to me arriving there in 2009 that they had been allowed to own their own personal bible mm-hmm. that that 10 years prior to me being there that they had never it was it was against the law for them to own their own Bible. That's mm-hmm. scary. Yes. It's so the only, the, only, the only way that they could understand the scriptures was in a way that they had been explained them, because that was all they knew. That's correct, yes. And that's a very old tradition. It dates back from the uh, uh, earliest parts of the, what ultimately became the Catholic Church. That the uh, well, I'll give you the problem when I talk about the wholesale illiteracy and lack of education that existed among the common people back in the early centuries. Uh, it is understandable why they did what they did at the time. I think that most any well-meaning person who was in a position of responsibility in that faith, in that religion, uh, and confronted with the circumstances that those people were confronted with, those authorities, would have probably chose the same path, guys. You know, if you and I were in that same position that they were in, I'd bet you dinner that we would probably have done the same thing. And then it became easy. Then it became convenient. It became the way, and so it was. Absolutely, I, I, and I don't dispute that along the way, a lot of these interpretations were m- well-meaning. Um, I, you know, I I have a great deal of trouble with those who believe in the all-over conspiracy that the Catholic Church is trying to take over the world. Um, I, I believe, I really do believe that these men, for the most part, were good at heart, and they truly wanted to help, and they believed that they were doing the right thing. Yes. And well, it, it's very clear from, again, from studying the writings of the Church Fathers, of the first, you know, uh, especially the first 200 years, uh, you know, the second century particularly, uh, of the Christian era, uh, you can tell what they were struggling with, and those who have never studied those aren't familiar with how the religion took form, uh, and uh, you know the debates that that went on, and and uh, you know all the reasoning that went into it, and the, and the difficulties that they were dealing with at the time. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, I'm going to look in the. I'm looking at Revelation now, the Revelation of John, um, and verse three, chapter one, very beginning of it. Uh, it says, uh, and I'll give you an example. I'm, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to ask you guys what you think this means. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are they who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. 
talking about listening to the word, hearing the word, speaking the word. Uh, what scenario do you think is being talked about here? The priest reading what? to his congregation. Exactly. And it's them hearing like him. Exactly. It's not that you're, you know, uh, you're reading this book by yourself and you're reading it aloud. The people were ignorant. The people were uneducated. They didn't know how to read. So you had someone who stood in front of the congregation, in front of the church, and read aloud the words of, of, the, of whatever it was. In this case, it was this prophecy. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, which would be the audience. And, uh, you know, most people that I ask don't really understand exactly what that's referring to because they don't understand the context of the history, the context of the time. Um, so, <clears throat> anyway, this, this, these are part of the political powers, so to speak, uh, uh, the authoritative powers of the church that began to, to take a, uh, a very political form and a very institutionalized form at the time of Constantine when he called the Council of Nicaea, called all the bishops together. And he told them, tell me, because I'm a new believer, tell me what orthodoxy is. Tell me what is orthodox. Decide what that is and let me know so that we can have an organized church that is ultimately to become the official religion of the Roman Empire, which also fulfilled the prophecy that the Jews believed when the Messiah was to come, that the Messiah was going to defeat the occupying oppressor, which was Rome. Well, the Messiah did defeat Rome several hundred years later. He control of Rome, uh, so to speak. Uh, <clears throat> so it's very interesting, but uh, here we have a situation where it became a, an institution at that time under the authority of uh, Constantine, and that's really when the Catholic Church was born. Even then, the Bishop of Rome did not claim the papacy until, I believe, the 5th or 6th century. He was an honored bishop considered uh, of greater stature than the other bishops from other cities, and that he was the arbiter in differences in arguments between bishops and churches from other cities. But he was not considered what they call the Holy See until the 5th or 6th century. That's when the Bishop of Rome at the time claimed the papacy. And I claim the leadership of the church in the name of Peter. So there was no pope even at that time. You know, people are led to believe it's some, some direct line straight down from Peter, but it, it, no, such, no such animal. Well, there, there is... Presented that way. Mm. ...that there is... But it wasn't until hundreds of years later it was actually claimed as some sort of institutional authority. The Bishop of Rome was given greater honor and greater respect 
because he inherited his position from Peter, but he was not considered of any greater official authority than any other bishop of any other city until the 5th or 6th century. Um, and then they all became popes. So, I mean, this is the historical truth about this. I know there's Catholics out there, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, and, and I realize when we're talking about these things that, uh, uh, you know, they could be sensitive issues. But I like to deal with what the historical facts are. And I like to deal with when we're talking about what the, you know, what Judeo-Christian, what biblical scripture might mean. I think the place to start with that is to actually read what it says. It's usually then, a good spot. Yeah, and then kind of talk about what it says. You know, I mean, that seems to be kind of uh, uh, obvious to me. But uh, Well, and it's how we got off into the whole conversation that we're that we're having was to try to try to provide a a context a framework of where did these ten commandments come from because that's where we started was we're going to talk about the ten commandments but you can't really understand what those mean until you have some context to the people they were that were talking about them and um, and that's one of the risks of you know trying to take writings that are 2,000 years old, some of them more than that, some of them less than that, uh, and and then interpret them today as being the truth because you you have to understand what it meant to those people that were writing it, and, and that's very difficult to do. We have a hard time with Shakespeare in his English, much less sure. ancient Hebrew that's been through Greek and Latin and English and round and round it goes. Um, you know, anyone will tell you that, um, you know, some some people have done that with books, etc. Is they'll have one person translate it to a foreign language and someone else translate it back to try to see if they're getting an accurate translation into the foreign language. And it invariably has big differences because translation is still sort of an opinion thing because you don't have one-to-one exchange of words. Yes. I mean, even when we're looking at the Greek, uh, if people, uh, uh, you know, took a look at an actual Greek manuscript, the New Testament, an ancient one, they'd take a look at it and say, well, where are the sentences? Where's the punctuation? Uh, There were no upper and lower case. There were no punctuation. There was no way to designate the beginning and the end of a sentence. The entire thing is a bunch of equally sized and spaced letters, hundreds of them written on a page in a paragraph form. Uh, There aren't even official paragraphs, so to speak. It's just letter after letter, on and on and on and on. And all the uh, 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 places that we're familiar with, with chapters and verses and beginnings of paragraphs and beginnings and ends of sentences and punctuation, that was all added later. None of that exists in ancient Greece, in ancient Greek. We're dealing with very primitive languages. Um, We're also dealing with a problem that none of the originals exist. We do not have an original letter of Paul written by his scribe that was dictated by Paul. Uh, which most, all of his letters were that way. They were dictated to a scribe. Uh, we don't have one. They're gone. 
Um, one thing we can say is that our best uh, uh, our best uh, um, assessment of what we call the ancient witnesses, which are the ancient documents and the texts that we have, we call them witnesses. Believe it or not, they're about 90% in agreement. And that's enough to say that, for the most part, we've got a pretty good idea what the, what the original documents said. Um, there are only minor differences in certain places, and those minor differences have created some very big schisms. Um, but anyway, uh, what I wanted to do real quick was to go through some of these passages about God and evil. Um, All right. We believe it or not okay. have uh, have surpassed our halfway point already. Um, <laughs> seriously? Sure. Yeah, seriously? Uh, wow! I so wasn't watching the time. Well, that's, there's always one of us that is. See, generally, I actually wasn't really watching it either, but I um, was noticing. I'm spending a lot of time on the patio, and I'm noticing that it's getting dark. So it means it's time, and I came in and looked at the counter, and sure enough, 49 minutes, right thereabouts. Um, so perhaps we should have our break before we uh, take a look at those passages. We definitely want to do it. I don't want to enter, you know, stop the conversation. I just, we have to do our thing. Yeah? Yeah, And And absolutely. what in the world would you play then? I don't know. <clears throat> Dude, it, it seems um, like a stopping point, so we'll we'll take it. Yeah, um, I don't know. You know what? A, a, a little hang music, probably, maybe. Um, we played hang music last time, so that would make sense. Okay, well, that's good. All right. See, my so. memory's not so bad after all. <laughs> and uh, and so we'll have a piece from our dear friend David Swarup. And uh, we'll be right back with lots more, so stay with us, folks.
And welcome back, everybody. Again, that was our friend David Swarup with uh, his song, and, and for, forgive me, David, if I don't, it's Muay Dani is what I'm going to say. M-O-O-I-E, another word, D-A-N-I. And being that David's German, I think, I'm not, but it wouldn't be pronounced with the American vowel sounds because we're the only, English the only language that does those ones. All right. So we were just about to look at some scriptures about God and evil and good and evil and somewhere around there, I think. The endless battle, something along those lines. Yes. Um, uh, we're also talking about the, uh, um, it's important to note, and what I'm talking about here, is to try to bring out what the underlying belief systems were during the times that these documents were written. And part of the, uh, the issue that we struggle with today is that some of those beliefs were lost uh, over the centuries. Uh, some of those understandings were lost. But if we read very carefully what's being said and try to imagine the state of mind, the frame of reference that the writer would be coming from, when he wrote these things, um, then you can kind of piece together what I talk about, this hidden underlying mysticism, these, or what I call, use in my book, talk about the hidden cosmology of the scriptures, which when you start analyzing them, it becomes clear that the writers understood these particular concepts and embraced them, and then they were lost over time. Uh, probably because they were too esoteric. Um, but anyway, uh, the understanding, in the certainly in Judaic times, was that there was no such thing as a fallen Lucifer, and that evil actually was something that God also created. Uh, so if we look at some different passages, as, as early in the book, we talked about the one in Genesis where it says that God made the serpent. And the serpent was subtle and cunning when God made him. It was of his nature. And we'll refer to that later because Jesus says a couple very interesting things regarding that. Uh, so if we look at Exodus uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Now, those are afflictions that are associated traditionally. Uh, even in, in the Christian era, it became to be associated with evil and sin. Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's not the devil. It's not Man's inherent sin that makes somebody deaf or mute or blind, it's God. He does it. And then we go into 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 16, 34. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, 
and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, here's another thing where God was the source of the evil. And if we look at Ecclesiastes, um, and there's other passages too. I'm picking out the most clear, black and white, no ability to dispute what's being said. Not making a stretch. Yeah, you know, straightforward. One can argue whether they accept this, these particular wordings, but um, yeah, in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse. 13 it says consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked oh wait I thought everything was done perfectly Uh, you know uh, (laughs) uh, and then we have the book of Sirach now this is one of the apocryphal books that is embraced by the Catholic Church it's resented today by Protestantism although these were also included in the King James Bible in a separate version. In fact, the bishop of the, of the church at the time of England uh, had passed a decree that if anyone had left those apocryphal books out of the King James Version, that it was subject to like one year imprisonment. So even Protestantism in the very beginning did not automatically reject these books. Um, Sirach says, good things and bad, life and death, poverty and wealth are from the Lord. And even if one would debate and say, well, gee, that's not canonical, this and that, it still is a reflection of the beliefs and understandings of the time. Just like many of the apocryphal writings. Um, like the book of Adam and Eve, which is an apocryphal writing. It's from the Christian era. We know it is not an ancient document before that because it talks about when Adam and Eve, when they were, you know, sent out in the real world and they were desperate and, and that the word came and lifted them up, which is which clearly a, 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 a Christian term. But it talks about uh, the idea that one of the things that Adam and Eve had to form was internal organs so that they could eat. And this just stressed them greatly that they were actually going to take a physical object and put it in their mouths to eat it for nutrition. This was abhorrent to them, which means that according to the understanding at that time, which we don't see a reflection of in the scriptures, but in the apocryphal writings, that the garden, the story of the Garden of Eden, is happening on a spiritual realm. And this is my argument of why chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis conflicts each other in the sequence of events. And we could talk about that too if we get a, a moment. I, I kind of went on a sidetrack there. Um, <laughs> we go back to Isaiah chapter 45, 6 and 7. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make wheel and create woe. That's God saying, this is me, I do this. It's from me. And in 1 Samuel, we go back to Samuel again, it says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
Now we go in the New Testament, we, we take a look at Luke, at the temptation. This is very interesting. It says, the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, I argue that the only being that had sufficient authority to deliver the kingdoms of the world and all the power to him was God. Certainly man didn't do it, because then otherwise man would have the authority to absolve his own sinfulness. He would have control over sin, control over evil, and then there would have been no need for a savior. So only God has the authority to grant Satan all these kingdoms of the world and all of its power, all their power and glory. And we go further to the New Testament. We take a look at the writings of Paul. And this is very interesting because we have to cross-reference this. In Ephesians, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood. What he means is in physical combat. We are not warring against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers and against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. So he's talking about these are the sources of the wiles of the devil, is the principalities and the powers, and that they're not physical places, where some people say, oh, he's talking about the principalities and the powers, he's talking about earthly kingdoms and, and you know governors sitting on thrones as principalities and powers. No, that's not what he says. He says, we're not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness on high, or in other translations, in the heavenly places, not on earth. Now, if we go to Colossians, we have the same Paul telling us, for in him, Christ, which of course at that time, Christ was considered the Son of God. He was part of the Trinity. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So the very thing that he was talking about, spiritual evil places and sources of that evil that were spiritual in Ephesians, now he comes in Colossians to say those things were made through Jesus Christ. And then he comes back, Later, in Colossians chapter 2, and he says, He, Christ, disarmed the principalities and powers and made it a public example of them triumphing over them, even though they were made through him. So here again, in the New Testament, at least in Paul's time, it was understood, at least from the apostolic authority, which Paul was a part of, that evil was made by God. It's just that most people just could not get that. They, there was no way they could reconcile that with what they wanted to believe God was. And those are where the problems started arising down the road. Absolutely, because it, it, yeah. it, it wouldn't... Well, I just... It wouldn't... The, the, some specific 
writing of God created good and God created evil would be like, in ancient Hebrew, there was no separate term for spiritual and non-spiritual, or spiritual and physical. It was just all life. It, 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 all of the people in the ancient Judaic tradition, that God created everything. He was the source of everything. So it was not really such a question like it has become. Uh, although I would say that there was certainly a distinction in understanding between what was heavenly and what was earthly, as far as a realm in the Old Testament, even though we made oh, yeah. a vocabulary word. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, 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 like, Jesus didn't tell people, okay, well, in your spiritual life, you so-and-so, but it's okay in your physical life to this. It was just your life. It was all just parts. Desperate yeah. parts. Disparate, uh, not desperate, disparate parts, but but all just parts of the one whole. Yes, although in John he does make those distinctions. He makes a distinction between spiritual death and physical death. Um, but John's is a very deeply mystical gospel. It is not a, a historical narrative like Mark, Matthew, and Luke. John had a very, very specific reason for writing the way he did, and it was all spiritual. But... Uh, I would say in the majority of cases you're right, but in John, uh, Christ does make that distinction. At least he's quoted as making that distinction. Um, but anyway, if we take a look in the book of Romans, uh, uh, Paul makes another astounding uh, 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 you know, statement. And again, we have to remember with Paul that Paul was a Pharisee. He was raised as a Pharisee. And he was considered zealous for the law. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees uh, before his conversion. And so Paul was intimately familiar with all the Jewish teachings. And in fact, he concentrates a lot on the, uh, uh, his main theme in the book of Romans is to chastise the Jews that were part of the Roman Christian church that were persecuting the Gentiles that were part of that church and basically treating them as second-class citizens. And Paul kind of takes it to them in the book of Romans. And in doing so, he actually lays out the, the underlying mystical and, and practical uh, definitions for what Christianity actually is and what it isn't. Um, so we... We look at this, he says, the creation, for the creation, was subjected to futility. Not of its own will. The creation was not subject to vanity and futility and vainness, not by its own will, but by him who made it subjected, in hope. Now, we don't associate Satan with anything in the terms of hope. So we know that Paul is not referring to Satan having made this, by his authority, having made the world subject to vanity or futility or hopelessness. He says that the world, the creation, was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope because creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage of, to decay. And so again, this is not has to do with sin. It doesn't have to do with a fallen angel. 
it has to do with the way God made everything. And that he indeed made evil and death into the world. Um, and the real clincher when it comes, in my mind, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, this idea of a glorified Lucifer that, that turned evil on his own. These are words of Jesus himself. This is from John. He's talking about Satan. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. He wasn't good at one time and then turned evil. And if say, well, you know, the beginning means when God created the heavens and the earth. This happened before. No, no, no. Because after God created the earth and the heavens in chapter 1 in Genesis, chapter 2 he talks about creating the serpent then. So we can't say the beginning that Satan was something different. In the beginning it means before heavens and earth. Jesus is saying from Satan's very beginning he was a murderer. And has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Now, Satan had free will to choose between truth and error, between good and evil. He would have to have truth in him in order to make that choice. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, to his very nature. It's his God-given nature. You know, he can no more do anything different than what he does than a giraffe turn himself into a hippopotamus. Right, because God made him that way. Exactly. He says, he does, he speaks according to his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. And, and of course, these passages that I'm talking about, you, you hardly ever hear any kind of a minister refer to these. They're, you know... They run away like be like somebody in a nightclub on fire. You know, they just they want to get as far away from those passages as they can, because those passages have a tendency to empty pews instead of fill them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of yes. whole good shepherd True. thing out the window and all that. And it's just like they'll they'll talk about the ancient Greek of having different forms of the word love, but I don't hear him talk about some of these other words that had five and six variations, which a lot of words did. Uh, they didn't mean different by context and inflection like you might in English. It, there was a different word. Mm-hmm. You know, the darkness of night and darkness of evil and dark, there was probably several different words. And, and, and um, well, the morning star, the bringer of the dawn, the bringer of the light, they they that's where Lucifer came from, but then again they didn't they refer to Christ as being the bringer of the light or the light bearer? Yeah. That's actually in Revelation when that is said. It's called it refers to Jesus as the morning star. It's the exact same so, heavenly body. Wow. That kind of blows the whole thing out of the water. Right. You just want to sit in that for a minute, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, when we, this is one of the, when I was understanding this, this is what kind of led me into a, um, 
you know, kind of gave me a clue and said, you know, there's something much deeper here than what's normally talked about. And it's actually speaking about a cosmology, the way that the universe is put together. And that I need to kind of take a look at this and think about it and kind of draw a picture in my mind what this would look like. And I noticed all the passages where Satan is linked very solidly to the physical world. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm flipping through a book right now, seeing if I can find uh, the place where I have all these. Uh, yeah, here we go. And I call this the principle of necessary evil. And we talked about this a little bit in the last show, that according to this understanding, which from the, from the passages in the scriptures, this was an understanding that existed in biblical times, that the devil was necessary for the physical universe to exist. And this gave me a clue because this was always this idea that how can something come out of nothingness? There had to be a pre-something. You know, when, when the Bible talks about this, uh, um, this formless matter that preceded physical reality, what was that? How was it created? And I just came to the conclusion from reading everything in the scriptures that according to the hidden cosmology of the time, that it had to do with, with the adversary. That the adversary was necessary to create the differences from which physical dimensions could arise and a physical universe could be made. And that's, this is a whole new area of Christian apologetics. Um, this actually answers that age-old question, one of the Augustinian mysteries. You know, if God is good, why is there evil? And there's been all kinds of religious and philosophical uh, answers to that. This is the first work that I believe states exactly why, because it was necessary. Um, <clears throat> so here we see Satan constantly being associated with the physical world. In the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord says to Satan, Whence have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And of course, remember when... Satan was in the garden. He was cast to the ground. He was destined to crawl on his belly on the ground. Again, associated with the physical earth. Um, the world cannot, uh, John, and, and Jesus says in John, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Again, Satan associated with the physical world. And John 12, that Jesus says, Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about the devil. And Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is from God. And again, in 2 Corinthians, he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And in Galatians, he says even a more cosmological statement. He says, When we were children, and he's talking about spiritual children, spiritually immature, 
We were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. That's a very interesting statement. And then, of course, in Ephesians, he calls Satan. He says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is another very physical kind of a statement. And, of course, when there was the battle in the heavens with Satan and the, the archangels, he was thrown down to the earth. And as I mentioned before, when we look at the final battle between Jesus and the devil in the book of Revelations, and the devil is finally defeated forever and ever, and is cast into the eternal pool of fire, the very next thing that John writes is that I saw a great white throne and he who sat upon it. From his face, the heavens and the earth fled away because there was no longer found a place for them once the Satan was gone. And so what I did in reading this, I believe I discovered this hidden cosmology that the wording, when you pick out these passages and read what they say, was clearly understood at the time. And based on that inspirational understanding, it helped me put together this theory of supergeometrics that is causing the stir that it is. And most of the time I don't talk about the biblical aspects of it. I just talk about the science of it, um, because the biblical aspects could get me in trouble a lot of times, <laughs> but it's all written in my book, so anybody who has the book knows where I'm coming from, and, and I show how this is a body of evidence, including other bodies of evidence, that when you put them all together, it leads to this theory that creates this giant umbrella in a very coherent way that science, the supernatural and religious belief can reside under it, and they all make sense, and they all tell the exact same story. Well, I can't dispute it, because I keep going back to back this base concept of a creator who created everything. How can there be anything created that stands outside of the creation of a creator who created everything. It's it's simply impossible. So if you come from the standpoint of of a core belief that the creator, God, created everything, then you simply have to also accept that God also created evil. You're right. And that it, there's there's no way to look at it. That's right. And if we read the Judaic scriptures, uh, the Old Testament, um, it's clear that this is what they understood, that everything came from God. Everything did. Um, but they didn't place the same emphasis on evil and on um, Satan as the Christians did from the New Testament era, uh, because their understanding of a salvation that was going to come and save them, a savior, was going to be a great military leader that was going to lead them to a great military victory and restore the nation of Israel. Um, 
But in the New Testament, uh, the, Christ, the, the Christian mysticism, the mystical understanding, was that uh, humanity needed salvation. And so consequently, the role of Satan and evil became very prevalent. Uh, it became a very important aspect of the faith. But even then, when we read the writings there and read what it actually says, there's still an understanding that God did create evil, and he is the one that imposed it upon the world. Which is shocking, no doubt, I'm sure, for some people. Well, I know. I there's a it, book with, about the Lucifer uh, thing. I mentioned it last time. Uh, Deconstructing Lucifer, uh, and the author is David Lowe. And you want to read a real eye opener? And the name is spelled L O W E. David Lowe. I'd forgotten his name last time. Real eye opener. Grab this book. Um, now, of course, I sent David a copy of my book, and I never heard back from him. And I wrote to him a couple months ago and emailed him, and he never responded. So I got a feeling he read my book and thinks I'm a hopeless heretic. <sighs> um, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I have a suspicion <clears throat> that that's the case. Uh, but anyway, it's still an incredible book. And that, there's a lot of uh, background from the first and second centuries in there that aren't directly in the Bible that you'll learn when you read that. And that's kind of, kind of the key to a lot of us. And certainly, you know, no, we don't even have close to enough time to get into this aspect of it tonight, is that uh, not all the scriptures are complete. They're not all there. Correct. And that's that's yep. the other that's the other unspoken element to to Christianity is that there are lost writings that some have been newly discovered and they're being disputed and that's fine, whatever. Um but those scriptures that are contained within the Bible, the Bible today as we know it, were carefully chosen during the Council of Nicaea. There were scriptures that were thrown out. So, you know, if, to truly understand the history of this religion, one has to really die way beyond their comfort zone. And oh, there's yeah. lots of gospels, there's lots of there's lots of books that are just gone. Yeah. And yeah. and some of which as you mentioned have been newly discovered and some of which are just flat gone. There's just nothing left of them. And uh there's even a gospel of Thomas, I understand. It's probably a different that Thomas. That we now have a Coptic copy of. The original yes. Greek we only have in fragments and for a long time there was a lot of speculation. Yeah, what they just found one. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Coptic copy, yeah. 
That's uh, great. That they were found in the Nag Hammadi Library that was dug up in Egypt. Uh, I want to say that happened in the 40s. And then we finally understood where the uh, uh, what these little fragments belonged to. They were to the lost gospel of Thomas, which was a sayings gospel. Uh, one but there have the there, been some that have come to light even more recently than that. Because the Nag Hammadi scrolls are are almost eighty years old now, I believe. If I have the if I have if I'm doing the math right, they're almost eighty yeah. years old. Yeah. So, but there have been more recent discoveries. Yeah. Um yeah. And, and you know, again that's a whole that's a whole other show, but I would encourage yeah. people if if they're listening to this show tonight and some of the things that have been brought to light, so to speak, um have have been a real eye opener, and if your your curiosity is peaked, then then take the dive. I I don't believe at any time that taking the dive into knowledge can injure your faith. I think it can only strengthen it in the end because when you get to the core message of a lot of these, even the lost scriptures, it's still all the same. It talks about one core creator and it, it you know, I mean, the teachings are, are still very similar to what we find in the Bible. Um, it's just that well, and a lot of a lot of the other stuff... That, some of them weren't thrown out because they said the wrong thing so much as just, you know, again, talking about an illiterate, uneducated public, quote-unquote, that it might confuse them. Right. And some of it was definitely heresy. Uh, for an Orthodox Jew or an Orthodox Christian, the Gnostic idea that there was a, an evil creator and that the, God, the Father of Jesus Christ is a different God is heresy. There's no way around that. Oh, yeah. The later Gnostic writings reflect a belief system that is strikingly different than Orthodox Christianity. Oh yeah, there were there were definitely some books that were just like, yeah, no way, this has got to go. But there were some that were argued even at the council, as you know. Yeah, but this is really the line. yeah. Do we keep it? Do we throw it out? Um, but but I mean, if you think think about think about the scriptures that were kept and the gospels that were kept, if 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 they had kept them all. I don't think anybody would ever be able to actually sit through a reading of the Bible. <laughs> and there it were some that were disputed that are in there, for example. And it wasn't the Council of Nicaea. It was a later council. I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head where they actually got together and said, okay, let's really decide what a Bible is. The Council of Nicaea was called to decide what Orthodox Christianity was. Um but in the later one, one of the disputes was they felt that the Gospel of John might be too much Gnosticism uh, because of the statement of Jesus in it that says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Where that says knowledge is salvation, whereas orthodoxy right. says is salvation. Uh, the other thing that we need to keep in mind also, uh, uh, reading these documents, particularly in the New Testament, is that every single one of those documents, the Gospels 
and the letters were written to a very specific audience for a very specific purpose. All the letters and even the Gospels were written for specific churches, specific congregations. They were not considered in silico where someone wrote it and then they said distribute this through all the churches in the world. They were written to specific audiences and those audiences had certain common knowledge with the writer. So the writer would say, uh, you know, would write something and say, for example, we see this in Paul's writings all the time, where he has certain concepts that are incomplete. He just mentions something, you know. It's like you and I were talking, and I would say, you know, remember what happened in the last ten minutes of that last show? Oh, yeah, we all know. And you write that in a document. And then everybody else that reads it has no idea what you're talking about. But everybody, audience who read the document that it was written for, everybody knows what happened in the last 10 minutes of the last show. So this is another thing you have to keep in mind. You have to be trying to fill in the blanks, envision the author writing to a particular audience, and what his purpose was, and what they might have understood, um, you know, like the book of Revelation, where we're talking about that was written after a time where the temple was destroyed, and the Christians were dispersed out of the Jewish faith. And once you understand that, you can see certain inferences and read between the lines and get the context that without that knowledge... You know, you don't really know what's being written and why, so to speak. Yeah, because some of the letters were actually even like corrective things of, you know, what you people are thinking is not the way I remember it. It should be like this or uh, and and you'd have to know where they were, what they were thinking when he sent it. it. It's. It's it's very difficult to, you know, we have huge arguments over books from 200 years ago, over what did that fellow mean, and with I good, heard there's one by ex- a guy named Charles Darwin. Yeah, with good explanations and 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 evidence based quote unquote evidence based things on both sides of the argument, and um, and and if we could do that with a book that's 200 years old. And you want to take one that supposedly was some of it written more than three thousand years ago. I don't see how there couldn't be the the, the big uh, differences in there. And uh, yeah, yeah, and and folks, you know what you were taught by your denomination, your church, whatever. Check up on it. Read, read the history of these things and see where they came from. And some of these things were originated much later than biblical times. And then you have to choose to whether to say, okay, I understand this was created at this time, much after the biblical time. Do I believe that this is biblically correct, or do I believe that this is something that was just uh, imagined by an individual? And they basically created their own religion, in a sense. 
and whether I'm going to ascribe to this religion that this church created or try to find the Christianity that existed at the time. Good example, the rapture. All in the popular vernacular, a movie was made where people airplanes, you know, crash because the pilot's gone and all that. And most people who attribute or, or, or believe in this don't realize it is a late 19th or a mid-19th century creation. It was created I know, it's, by... It's really, really scary. Um, that I actually had a conversation with somebody once who, who looked me straight in the eye. And so, so I asked him, I said... Because we were talking about, you know, I, I can't remember which belief system he came from. It was one of the Christian sects. But I, I asked him, I said, so so under your belief, that when, when the rapture comes, if a child in Africa has not been introduced to Christianity or to the Bible, then that child is going to go to hell eternity. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes. And... I, w- I was simply blown away by this. I said, okay, so so a Muslim woman who takes in a child who is not of her own blood and raises it as her own, gives it love, gives it, because she's Muslim, she's going to hell. And he said, yes. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, I, I I just struggled so hard well, with, and he was yes. When the rapture comes, it's, if if they have not, and see that's in that's a belief know, trans- in dispute that that you know some say well if they haven't heard and haven't had the ability to choose then then they're going to heaven, but some say then they're not, and it, it's I think there's a great modern example in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. I have talked to friends of my goddaughters who, that's all they know much besides Kennedy got shot, is that movie. And and they think that's the gospel truth, the whole thing. And, And that, you know, the government made everything else up. And, and it's not. There's lots of reasonable people, including friends of that uh, district attorney in New Orleans that didn't believe what he said. Uh, it's it's the case in in many of these things where someone's opinion or idea, however supported or unsupported it may be, has come across as as fact. And um, it it's really easy to do because more people have paid attention to a cinematic movie than have paid attention in history class. And I'm going to say something that's going to reflect upon what I talked about earlier with the earlier church. Why didn't they have this kind of a problem once they had the institutionalized orthodoxy established because they didn't let the laity read the Bible? They interpreted the Bible for them so that they wouldn't get these far-fetched ideas from taking something out of context and not understanding what the context was or the Bible in its entirety. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is why they did this. It was their motivation, 
Yeah. Yeah. They thought they were. They. they in most cases, they were. They thought they were defending the truth, not distorting it. Yeah. Let's take a look real quick at if we think about Revelation. John is writing to the seven churches that are in exile in Asia. These were churches of the dispersion. These were the ones that were set up in a land that was separated from the Roman Empire so that they're not being burned at the stake and fed to the lions, and they're not being turned over to the Roman soldiers by the Jews that had thrown them out of Judaism. And John describes them as the seven lampstands that are actually sitting in the throne room of God with the twelve apostles, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And, I mean, this is a pretty holy place to be. But when you read what John says, he talks about all these disasters that are coming, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the four horsemen, and he's instructing these churches, and he says that they who persevere to the end will be saved. Now, if these are the holy, righteous lampstands that sit before the very throne of God, why should John be telling them what is going to befall them and that they need to persevere and have faith if they've already been removed from the face of the earth in the rapture? Think about it. You know, so it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But this was, the, the history of it is traced back somewhere in the 1800s. The idea of the rapture never existed before, and it basically creates a new religious belief that changes what the traditional belief is about what is going to happen when all these disasters occur, when the poop hits the fan, so to speak. Um, <laughs> So, in a sense, it's, it's like a pseudo-Christianity. It is a new religion uh, that's very close to the other one, but it's very different. It's not like saying, you know, well, we believe that women should have their head covered, and we believe that women shouldn't talk in church as those who oppose, you know, uh, that think they should. These are just minor things. Um, we're talking about a whole different direction about where the entire faith is leading. Uh, and so that's, that's something that, you know, again, this is why they didn't let the laity read the Bible. Fascinating. All, almost all done in the name of defense of the faith. It's, it's a very complex subject, and it, it takes a lot of study uh, to actually try to find out, well, translation says this. Well, what does this translation say? And where does this translation date back to? And what early witnesses, you know, what early documents refer to this? And what's the underlying Greek? And what's the underlying, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Hebrew? And what's our best thumbnail about what this is? Uh, you know, uh, 
Um, once we had the Protestant Reformation, we had a situation where anyone who had their own idea could go and form their own church and be legitimized. And I'm not arguing, I am not a Catholic. I'm not arguing from a Catholic point of view. I'm, I'm basically talking about history and what we can see by just reading and understanding what's before our eyes and what, and, and what is the record of history. I'm not arguing any kind of a denominational position, trust me. Um, you know, so we have this history uh, where anybody can legitimize themselves as a church once the Protestant Reformation uh, broke off, um, rejected certain books and certain concepts that would have, which meant their excommunication was meaningless because the principles upon which the excommunication was based is invalidated by them. Therefore, there was a political motive to it as well. When the church persecuted Galileo for publishing, you know, the, the treaties, uh, the dialogue on the two systems of the world, and, you know, uh, played the Catholic Church in the role of Simplicio, which was basically he treated the Catholic priests, he depicted them as idiots, you know, which is why they arrested him. Um, then science decided to create their own standards. That's when science really broke with the Catholic Church. Before that time, science was considered a sub, a set of subthought of the Christian faith. It was a subcategory. It was trying to figure out how God put everything together. How, how it was put together, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but then it broke away. Now, what happened then? Again, these are things that people who haven't studied the history of it may not be aware of, is that there became a break between the description of the physical world and the Bible. See, before that time, there was a link that this was the cosmology, this is the way the physical world is put together, this is what the Bible says, and it matches up. So if you question what the Bible says, all you have to do is look at the physical world, and that is the visible, tangible proof of what the Bible is saying. Once that was broken, that connection between cosmology and faith, then it became whatever you personally interpreted it as. If this felt good to you, then this was fine. If this felt good to you and this felt right, then this was fine, because there was no longer a tangible reference point to say, no, this is right and this is wrong, and it has nothing to do with what you feel might be right, right or wrong, because here's the visible creation as the evidence that A is right and B is wrong. And the church, which is the ultimate authority, is backing A. You see what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, and it was all together, and then it sort of went in its in all of its separate ways. And as you said, once there was the Reformation, then then it just was almost a free for all. 
uh, of uh, hey, I get to we get be revisionist, be revisionist on the '60s uh, saying, you know, if it feels good, believe it, mm-hmm. instead of and if then, it feels you know, good, do it. Gene, Gene, you and Richard, you and me, we'll get together and we'll start a church tonight. It's you know, everyday connection now, church. You know, and, and we'll get a charter and, and we'll hang up whatever we need to hang up and and, and go do whatever we need to do to few, fill pews. Yeah. Whereas in the olden days, they filled mm. pews because, God forbid, if you didn't sit in that church that day. Right. Might go to hell. Yeah, yeah. you might. <laughs> you could be excommunicated. Well, uh, you know. Uh, here we... Uh... Here we arrive again at the, uh, uh, we've actually gone uh, gone well over our 90 minutes, but uh, we've got cool listeners. They, they hang with us. It's really yeah. uh, good of them because it's an amazing topic and, and one which could go on almost without end. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, uh, I don't mean that in any, I, I'd sit and talk all night if it was given the opportunity, but... Uh, but we do have to reel it in at some point, um, and and it is it is true that this deeper look at their cosmology is how you began your your journey into your book uh, behind the cosmic veil, uh, because it's a cosmological view as well that that sort of puts the science and the and the uh, religion back together, uh, the yeah, science I, and the spirituality, I, not religion. I bad word. Yeah, once I started getting a clear picture of what this hidden cosmology was, and then started comparing it to my my physics education, it was like, oh my goodness. Bells started ringing. Things started making connections, and, and that's where it grew out of. So everybody needs to get by to Cosmic... It's just CosmicVail.com? Uh, not the behind the right? Cosmicveil.com. Yeah, Cosmicveil.com, spelled V-E-I-L. That's right, not the ski place, uh, the kind that goes over your face. And um, uh, and and check out the book because it's a it's a fantastic book. We we do have a show earlier uh, with Thomas where he speaks more directly on on how that comes together, the uh, physics and the metaphysics and the paranormal and. Uh, uh, very interesting show as well. So uh, definitely look through our website. Just just punch in Thomas Fusco, and and they'll all just jump right up in front of you for your listening pleasure. Um, gracious Thomas, thanks again for your time, your talent, your treasure, and uh, uh, it would be fun to sit around the the three of us sometime and uh, uh, around the uh, fireplace and uh, and just really go at it because. Uh, uh, it's an amazing subject and, and, and certainly an amazing body of research that you've done. Uh, so thank you for that. Thanks for having me on, guys. Always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure. We'll have to do it again soon. Yes, indeed. We'll find something. <laughs> oh, right on. mercy. So I, we have... More fantastic shows coming up. The morning show's coming along soon. Uh, it is. And um, so we do hope that all you guys will get by everydayconnection.me so you can get all noted up on that subject. 
and, uh, and that you will join us again next time. But until then. To our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee. You can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.